finally all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The passage you just heard read so beautifully with that gorgeous photography is from the third chapter of Simon Peter's first letter. Verse 8 reads, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. He had just completed instructing wives and husbands in their relationship with each other and how to have unhindered prayers. And he says, Finally, everybody love one another, be of one mind, have unity, be in one accord, having compassion for one another. Compassion is more than sympathy. It's concern for the misfortune of, of another accompanied by a strong desire not only to relieve the pain but to remove the cause. It's really a desire to help one another. He says, love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. You know, common courtesy goes a long way. And oftentimes we think, well, I'll be courteous if they're courteous. No, this is our instructions. We're to be courteous whether the other party is courteous or not. Sometimes people are having a bad day. Yes, I know that's an excuse, but you can make their day better by being courteous. It takes a man, not a wimp, to be courteous to those who are rude. Verse 9 emphasizes that point not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing, knowing that you were called to this. We're called to be courteous people. We're called to be compassionate people. We're not called to be vindictive or retaliatory or to hold grudges or to build cases against people. We were called to this. And here's our promise, that you may inherit a blessing. I wonder how many blessings are waiting on our inheriting them if we would just start being courteous, start turning the other cheek, start allowing God's love to show through us against the backdrop of rudeness and anger that's in our culture. So here's the quote from Psalm 34 that we read at the beginning of the service, verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We're to look for peace, and then we're to run after it. You know, every argument doesn't have two sides. It does, and many times people will never find peace. But we should look for another way. 
look for another resolution. And I'm not just talking about compromise. That's cheap and it doesn't always last. But I'm looking for what's called the third option. The third option. An optimist and a pessimist were arguing over a glass of water. One said, the glass is half empty. And the optimist said, no, the glass is half full. Which one is right? They're both right, but they won't make peace. The third option is a glass is always full, and this glass is full. Half water, half air. There's your third option. Surely every controversy we're in has more than just two sides. There's always God's side. Let God be true and every man a liar. And let's look from his vantage point as to what's important. In light of eternity, some of our mountains are nothing but bumps along the road, and we don't need to allow our days to be ruined by dumb stuff. Anyway, let's move on. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's like, talk to the hand. He's near those who are brokenhearted and contrite in spirit and humble. But when we're prideful, how's God going to bless that? He's, he would be reinforcing an agenda that is contrary to his will. May all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of, of our God when we allow him to rule and reign. You know, we can fight over who's going to rule in the White House, but what's most important is who rules in your house, who rules in my house, who rules in this house is so important. And if he rules, then that clears up a lot of controversy. Verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Oh, they may annoy you, they may hurt you, they may incarcerate you, but in light of eternity, nothing can be done to you that is permanent. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. If you're righteous and you're walking in the ways of the Lord, people can annoy you, people can hurt you, people can bother you. But if the Lord's on your side, stay tuned. The story is not over. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's self-control. Meekness is power under control. With self-restraint and respect, we can share with everyone that asks us why we have hope in the Lord. Why aren't you upset? Why aren't you annoyed? Why are you angry? Why are you setting fire to stuff? Well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and I'm to keep my eyes on him. I'm told in the scriptures to set my affections on things above. If this was all there is to existence, I too would be miserable. But I have eternal life. My body will die and decay, but I am going to be with my maker. Would you like to know why I know this? And that could segue into you sharing the good news of the gospel simply by knowing the reason for the hope that is in you and being ready, being ready to share that hope for those that ask you. Verse 16 is the power to our witness. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know, when we do evil, we will suffer. That's not a good thing. 
But if we have done right and we know we've done right and we suffer, we know God is on our side, the story's not over, there's a confidence, there's a faith that's in our hearts that comes from God. Our conscience is clear. We have nothing to fear. Sure, they can take our life away, but then we get to be with Jesus. I never wanted to live in a nursing home anyway. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. See, he is our example. Unjust people put him to death, and he died for them. He died on the cross of a murderer, Barabbas. He took our place. You know what Barabbas means? Bar-rabbas. Abba is father. Bar is son of or child of. He died for one of God's children. I hope we see Barabbas in heaven one day through his faith in the one who took his place literally. He could be redeemed from his life of crime. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. You ever think of the humility of Jesus humbling himself? Watchman Nee and teaching from the book of Philippians says that Jesus humbled himself progressively or digressively. As God, he became man. As man, he became a servant. As a servant, he became a criminal without committing a crime. He became sin. As sin, he became tortured. As tortured, he became dead. As dead, he became buried. As buried, he became alive. Hallelujah. Thank God for the resurrection. Pastor Olin sent me a text the other day of a quote from a book he is enjoying called The God You Should Know by J. Sidlow Baxter. Listen to this quote. The humility of God. God's words are wonderful, but his deeds are even more wonderful. And Calvary is his greatest speech of all. It cost him far more to redeem the world than to create it. He carries a whole universe on his shoulders with ease. But when carrying the cross to Calvary, he staggered and fell. That's the beauty of the gospel. God, through his son, bore our sins so that we could be redeemed from a life of sin. For Christ also suffered once for sin the just for the unjust, why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that your word would speak to us, that your word would change us, and that we would be renewed in our hearts in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to focus for the next few minutes on verse 16. Having a good conscience that when, not if, but when, they defame you. Who's the they? They're defamers. They're denouncers. They're slanderers. They're persecutors. When they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. In court, their testimony will fall apart by the witness of your life, of my life, of our lives. How? By having a good conscience. I'd like to speak to you for the next few moments on the priority of a good conscience. Can we say priority? And we say good conscience.
The word conscience in Webster's 19th century dictionary is defined as internal or self-knowledge or judgment of right and wrong, or the faculty, power, or principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our own actions and affections and instantly approves or condemns them. So it's an internal knowing that judges right and wrong in our life. Now, our conscience is not a good guide. The Quran and Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide. We want the Word of God to be our guide. We want the Holy Spirit to be our guide as he teaches us through the Word. But our conscience can be trained and help us as an alarm system. While it's not our guide as far as leading us, it's our guide as far as guarding us, warning us. Don't go there. Red light, red flag. That's the operation of the conscience. I'd like to speak to you on the priority of a good conscience. Keep in mind the adjective there, good. There's a reason for it. Our conscience, according to the Scriptures, can be weak. Because a conscience can be trained, you could be made to feel guilty for things that are not sinful. I grew up in an entire denomination that was full of weak consciences. That uh, if you cut your hair, ladies would feel guilty. If men didn't shave, they would feel guilty. If they came to church without a necktie on, they would feel guilty. Their consciences were trained and made weak. And they used this very verse to defend some of their teachings. 1 Corinthians 8, 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So there are people whose consciences are easily offended, and this happens when people put their personal convictions on others. I went to Bible school with a guy who used to be a roller skate fanatic. And this particular Bible college campus had roller skating. He wouldn't indulge in roller skating. He says, sure as I do that, I'll wind up down at the roller rink and wind up drinking and running with wild women. This was back in the 70s, folks, when roller skating was a thing. So for him, he had a personal conviction against roller skating. He was concerned that he might fall back into his old lifestyle. I have another friend who was an entertainer, a great musician. And for a long period of his life, he had no musical instruments in his home because he was afraid he would go back to his old way of living, of sin. But in both cases, their consciences were warning them not to go down the old paths, but they had enough sense to know not to put that on other people and say, it's a sin to play an instrument. I think there's a denomination that feels guilty if they have instruments in the church. That's a weak conscience. These brothers had wisdom. They didn't condemn people that roller skated or played the piano. One day, the brother with a musician, his wife went out and bought him a piano, and he was able to play for the Lord, played in church, and never did fall back in his old ways. So the point remains, there are people that have a weak conscience in this passage, the context is talking about eating food that's offered to idols. And if there's a danger that food is offered to idols, then, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, Paul said, be careful in dealing with one another's convictions, one another's consciences. Don't just offend them to offend them. Don't sin against them. Now, the denomination I was raised in Grown men, mature Christians, pastors who serve for years use this verse to defend their little convictions. They felt guilty for wearing a wedding ring and they would put it on other people. My conscience bothers me, so you can't do it. This is really written for how to care for baby Christians, not mature men and women of God. We need to grow in our faith like the pianist grew and the roller skater grew. These grown men need to grow and stop hiding behind this verse. But as believers who with, who, with good consciences, we've got to be aware that some people's consciences are weak. 
Some people's consciences have been trained. A Muslim will feel guilty for not praying to Allah so many times a day. What is that? That's a weak conscience that has him feeling guilty when what he doesn't do is not a sin because Allah is not God. He's the moon God. Read your history, folks. Our conscience can be defiled. You can have a good conscience and then defile it by ignoring what it is telling you. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So if you defiled your conscience, today's a day. Don't turn off your computer. Don't silence your phone. I mean, if there's annoying devices in your house that are distracting you, turn those off. But stay focused here because there's hope. Your conscience doesn't have to stay defiled. The Word of God is reaching out to you right now. You can pray and repent. There's hope for you. Just stay with me and we'll get there. Our conscience can be seared. This is how it becomes defiled. Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy in his first letter, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, now the Spirit expressly says, the Holy Spirit was speaking to him, that in latter times some will depart from the faith. This was in their day. It's even more true than ours. People leave the faith. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. What is this kind of doctrine? Universalism is that. Inclusive, inclusive uh, redemption is this. People don't have to believe in Jesus. They don't have to repent. You never apologize to God once you're his child. That, that's not even good manners, and we're told to be courteous. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You ever been burned? That can do nerve damage. Where you're burned, your skin may not be as sensitive as it was before once it heals up. So our consciences can be overridden and defiled and burned to the point they no longer speak to us. May God help us to approach him when our consciences are seared or being seared and repent and say, Lord, heal my conscience. Well, isn't the Spirit supposed to lead us? Yes. But the conscience is an area where the Spirit works with us and speaks to us. And you ignore that. You're turning off a communication system that God wants to use. Our conscience can be pure. He also told Timothy in the preceding chapter that he was to be holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience a good conscience that is pure. Now, a bad conscience can be one that a person thinks is pure, but because they've been defiled or they've seared it or it's been trained in something that's erroneous, that's not really a pure conscience. A pure conscience is based on the faith, the mystery of the faith, the truth of the gospel, faith in God's pure word. In his next letter to the same man, he begins the letter with these words, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. Can you say, can I say, can we say that our conscience is pure? It's what we're talking today, a good conscience that is pure. A conscience can be cleansed. Here's hope for the defiled, the weak, and the seared. Our impure consciences can be cleansed. Hebrews 9.14 talks about the blood of Christ. How much more shall the blood of Christ, compared to all the Old Testament sacrificial systems, how much more than that, now that we're in the better covenant, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve died for my sins. 
so that I could be freed from guilt and shame. He died so that we could be redeemed from a life filled with regret. Our conscience can be good. That's what we're talking about today. He begins his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 19, that he is to have faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck. If you ignore the warning lights on your car, you may suffer being stranded on the side of the road. And while this young man had a prophetic destiny, things that were spoken over him with the laying on of hands, he was to hold a good conscience and have faith, which those who rejected the faith or rejected listening to their conscience, they suffered shipwreck. And their promise they were hoping in would not be fulfilled. Now, the story's not over. You can repent. But so a good conscience can help you and I fulfill our prophetic destiny. Hebrews 13, verse 18, the writer says, We are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. In this dishonorable, disrespectful pandemonious world, you and I can have a clear conscience and can sleep good at night without fear of being exposed. There's a modern parable of back in the days of Messenger that someone messaged everybody in an office building. And the message that went to every person in the office building was, you have been found out. All has been exposed. And it created all sorts of anxiety in that building. Why? Because of people's conscience. If you know you're not living right, you are vulnerable to anxiety, to depression, to worry, to sleepless nights. But if our conscience is clear, if our conscience is good, there's a boldness there, a fearlessness that we are called to walk in. Many times, men especially are prone to anger because of the conscience issue. The anger is making up for it, covering it up. So it's so important to have a good conscience. Our text today, 1 Peter 3 again, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, we don't live right to shame other people. That's a self-righteous thing that's like filthy rags, according to the Bible. And when you say filthy rags, that was written in a time when there was no such thing as toilet paper. So you get my words. Self-righteousness is nasty. But if we have a good conscience, people can be out to attack us, but eventually they're going to come to a place of being sorry. While that wasn't your intent, my intent, our intent to shame others, we want to live a life free of a guilty conscience. Now, why is it a priority to have a good conscience? We already said some things, but here they are in a list form. Our lives can be powerful when free of guilt and fear. We can be bold, fearless. It's also important to have a good conscience because the defamation of our character is a real possibility. There's slander in the world. There's libel going on in the world. The courtrooms are filled with cases dealing with this. But if your conscience is good, clear, you have nothing to fear. So it's important to have a good conscience because if you don't, someone may defame you and it will stick and ruin your life even though it may not be 100% correct. Having a good conscience is a priority because of reviling good conduct can happen at times. It's another way of saying just the preceding statement. It does happen. People's good conduct gets criticized. Well, he's just doing that or she's just doing that because criticize you. It happens. 
that having a good conscience, you don't have to be afraid of criticism. You don't have to get all hurt. It happens. Having a good conscience is a priority because hostilities toward us could be beginning to increase. We're living in a hostile season in the United States and the world, and it could be beginning to increase. It could be. Why do I say that? Here's another list. Hostility toward us as believers may increase because our world is and will be becoming more stressful. We're hearing about the new normal. You remember what it was like to fly from place to place, from these beautiful airports to beautiful airports before 911 happened? When that happened, that established a new normal. Another annoying thing that we have to put up with because of 911. So we don't know. What are we going to have to put up with as a result of this plague, be it real, be it design, whatever the theory is that you hold to? I'm not going to argue with you on it. You may very well be 100% correct. But the truth is, whatever it is, the, the fact of there being a new normal could be true. So it could be become more stressful. It definitely is going to raise up prices. It's definitely become more stressful because of people losing their jobs. I was in a business recently here in Granbury to make a purchase. This was during the height of people being afraid, and I wore a mask. Lori Zeger made me a beautiful mask, and I wore it. It looked masculine, and I felt good about it. I went in and did my shopping. So I went in to the cashier's line to make my purchase, I was standing at the appropriate distance, and the customer in front of me was trying to get the cashier to give credit for expired coupons. And she was getting more and more frustrated. She turned and looked at me. Now, my face is covered up. You can just see my eyes. She looks at me and says, I waited my turn. I guess... Some people think their life is more important than other people's. About that time, another cashier opened his register, and I immediately changed lines. I wasn't going to argue with that person. Do I take it personal? No, that's just a sign of the stressful times we're in. So this could increase hostility towards everybody. People are upset. People are angry. Depending on how you view this season, could have an impact on how you feel about life. Hostility toward believers may increase because of churches receiving government loans without repaying those loans. Now, you may not know about this. You may attend a church that has borrowed money from the government. I'm not throwing stones at any church for doing this. But I'm telling you, the culture is going to have people that are not happy about this. Here's a CBS News report. As suffering businesses around the country clamor for much-needed loans from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, news of prominent national chains receiving millions of dollars sparked an outcry among small business owners who had been shut out. By the time their application was turned in, there was no more funds available, and then our government had to go back to the bargaining table to come up with more funds to give to small businesses. Now, many will be surprised to learn that over 12,000 Catholic churches in the U.S. applied to receive the coveted PPP loans. Around 6,000 parishes that had turned in their applications had them approved in the first round. And around 3,000, that's a total of 9,000, have received loans in the second round. And it's not just Catholic churches, Protestants too. A new survey by Lifeway Research found that 40% of America's Protestant churches also applied for government resources. 59% of Protestant churches that applied for government assistance were approved. Half the pastors that averaged 200 or more attendees said that their church applied for a loan 
compared to a third of the churches that average less than 50 that applied for a loan. So apparently, as long as a house of worship employs less than 500 people, can request a federal loan under being an essential business that's related to two and a half times their average monthly payroll. These loans, plus their 1% interest, will be forgiven by the government as long as 75% of those funds are used to cover payroll expenses in the eight weeks after the churches receive those funds. The remaining 25% of the government funds can be used to pay rent, utilities, insurance, mortgage interest, other operating costs. A former Republican mayor of Valparaiso, Indiana, John Costas, wrote this in Christianity Today. He said, there are socioeconomic and social justice issues here that must be considered by churches who may be draining grant money away from those who need it more. The decision to apply for and receive PPP funds is one of the most important issues the church will face in this decade. It could set a precedent and may in time hinder the mission of the church especially if the strings attached to government funds are not consistent with Scripture. In other words, you know what? If you don't back off on this issue or that issue or change your preaching on this issue, you will have to pay it back. It's possible. You don't think our government does things retroactively. You need to pay attention to history. Talk to a Comanche or a Cherokee or a Chippewa or a Choctaw, and they'll tell you about America's retroactive government. Why do I say that? Do I say churches that need help shouldn't get it? I'm not saying that. I am saying it's going to affect the culture, and so hostility toward us as believers could increase. This is why we need to have a good conscience, because if we are living lives that are substandard to following Jesus, get ready to be ashamed because people will not put up with hypocritical Christianity anymore. That's really what I think. I hope it's not true, but it's a possibility. So I'm not prophesying, I'm just sharing what I see out there. Another reason why I think hostility toward believers may increase because there are plenty of Christians bearing false witness on social media by not checking the facts and by not checking the fact checkers, and by not checking the date. Some things that get shared over and over again happen months or weeks ago, and it's no longer the case, or it's been disproven. And yet, there's believers I've observed, no one in generations though, they forward things on social media that they know are not true, and when confronted, they say, well, I like it because it's funny. That's bearing false witness. That could increase the level of hostility. So when someone approaches you, whatever way they do it, about something you have shared that is not true, and you see your error, don't get upset. Don't call them a troll. Thank them and delete that post. That's what I do. Another reason I think hostility towards believers may increase, this is why we need to have a good conscience, is believers are going beyond just taking a stand. I believe we need to take a stand for truth and for righteousness and for right. Take a stand against wrong. But they become name callers. They're joining in the slander game. They're labeling. They're shaming. That is not what we're called to do, church. Another reason I think hostility may be on the rise is there are churchgoers who refuse to obey our God-given instructions. The Lord would save us a world of heartache if we just humble ourselves and say, Lord, what is your will for my life today? And follow him. And another reason that hostility may be on the rise is because of religious folks who do not value having a good conscience. They just go on from one disaster to the next, 
from one fight to the next. That's not good. This is the way the world operates. Here in Hood County, we've got Republicans fighting each other. How's that going to help win elections? The value of a conscience, good conscience, is so important. Hostility may be on the increase. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. But what I'm sharing with you today is true anyway. Having a good conscience is good, and it's important to pay attention to your conscience and to stop overriding it if you are. Why am I preaching this right now? Because I think it's needed. I just do. How to have a clear conscience. Here's some keys to having a clear conscience. Repent from every form of disobedience. If you do wrong, admit it. Confess it. Come to Jesus. Tell him you're sorry and turn from it. Don't defend it. Well, that's just the way I am or I'm Irish or I'm Dutch or I'm angry or, well, he did this or he did that. If you, anyone who raises more than two kids knows about this blame game. A child gets in trouble, and they figure out how to shift it to others. I used to work in a hotel. Hotels are unique places where they're filled with departments. And when something goes wrong with a customer, here comes the blame game in staff meetings, one department pointing to the other department. And sometimes it's like a comedy of errors. It's like every department dropped the ball. That doesn't help. What helps is when each department repents and changes their ways. May God help us to do the same. How to have a clear conscience. Receive God's loving forgiveness by faith. He forgives. He forgives. Do not allow this word just to heap guilt on you and, and turn off the TV or the computer or the phone loaded down with shame. Repent and receive God's loving forgiveness by faith. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When I wasn't worthy of anything, he gave his life for me. Now, I'm not saying I'm worthy of anything, but he makes us worthy. He makes us rich. We're his children. Receive that loving forgiveness by faith. You don't have to go to some weird ritual to get your forgiveness. You don't have to do penance. It's repentance, turning around making a change. Repentance is more than shedding tears. Godly sorrow works repentance, but it's changing your ways. In England, when they march around Buckingham Palace and it's time for the soldiers to make an about face, the commander says, repent, and they turn and make a 180 and head back the other way. That's what this is, the call to repent. To have a clear conscience begin to follow your conscience, what little bit you may have that's not damaged. Apply it, and it will grow and become stronger and better and receive God's forgiveness by faith. You've made a change in direction. Thank you, Lord. It's a new day. Now let's move forward. Around New Year's every year in various places around Latin America, they have a ritual called the burning of the dolls. And it's where they'll take a rag doll or an effigy of some sort and stuff it full of things from the previous year that they regretted. Maybe it's actual items, you know. Uh, could be a cell phone that they used when they had an affair with someone. Uh, could be credit cards that they let get out of control. Or could be things they write down on paper, things they regret, things they want to stop. And they stuff it into this doll, and they burn it down at the town square. They, you can see pictures of this happening at a place called La Plata in Buenos Aires and other cities. As believers, we don't have to do this. Jesus became our sin and took our place so that we could receive forgiveness. So you don't have to burn an effigy of your sin every year. You just receive. If there is a purgatory, he went to purgatory for you and I. So we don't have to go. That's salvation. Isn't that awesome? So to have a clear conscience, we should repent from every form of disobedience, turn from it, 
and receive God's loving forgiveness by faith and recommit our life to the Lord Jesus daily. When did you give your life to the Lord? Some people see that as their testimony. Well, I gave my life to the Lord when I was five years old. Well, if you gave your life to the Lord when you're five years old, that's wonderful. But if you're 50, surely you've given it to him some more. Jesus said, anyone who would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Committing our life to the Lord is a daily thing. It's a daily thing. Sometimes when I commit my life to the Lord, I commit all that I am. I'll take my watch off, my keys out of my pocket, my wallet, my shoes off, my belt off, everything that symbolizes Alan Latta. Lord, I commit these things to you today. And then I put them back on in obedience to him to live his will. Commit your life to Jesus daily. Do it today. To have a clear conscience, we need to refine. Refine, I'm working with the letter R here. Refine means to purify. Refine all your filters and intake channels. Everything that's coming into your life, refine it. You may need to cancel some email subscriptions. You may need to cancel some magazine subscriptions. You may need to install an internet filter on your phone or your computer or your home computer. Whatever is feeding you, if it would lead you astray, if it is not God's will, if it's something you'd be ashamed of, get rid of it. Get rid of it. This is part of repentance in action. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, but it's turning and going the opposite way and taking measures so you don't turn back around and and do a 360 instead of a 180. To have a clear conscience, we should request the Lord's divine guidance often. In committing our life to him, we ask him, Lord, what is your will for me today? What do you want me to do today? I don't want to be ridiculous, but it's not bad to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to dress today? Some believers dress in such a way that you know, you know, if they had asked the Lord, he'd have told them, you know, that's a little lewd there. Let's don't do that. Follow his leadership. Let him be your guide as you always decide to follow his plan for your life. And then remember to do what he shows you. You know, one thing to ask the Lord for guidance and then to forget it. Not just a religious ritual we do. Oh, Lord, I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Oh, wait a minute, I'm getting up. Oh, Lord, I commit my life to you today. Lead and guide me. Now, what was I planning on doing? No, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then remembering what he's showing you. To have a clear conscience, we need to reconsider our priorities that may not be his. What is so important in life that may not be his priority for you? What our priorities are determines what we spend our money on, what we borrow money for, these kind of things. If they're not God's will, we need to reconsider them. What are we talking about? We're talking about clearing our conscience. To have a clear conscience, we need to repay everyone we owe. There's people you owe money to or stuff to. Why sit around and spend years hiding, being nervous? Make plans to pay. Contact your creditors and say, listen, I want to get on a plan to get things right with you. I'm not happy with what the, the way it is. You want God's blessing? It's important of having restitution. That is part of repentance. I have a friend as an unbeliever he stole, in his younger days, a total of 15 cars. He got caught, but up to that time, he went to his church a few times and went to confessional. Not one time did the spiritual leader he's confessing his sins to speak to him about restitution. You know, give the car back, replace the damage, whatever. No, just say 49 Hail Marys and 49 Our Fathers and... That's penance. That's not, that's not restitution. That really doesn't appease your conscience. Your conscience won't buy that. That's a game, and your mind knows it. 
So you owe someone, come to them. Go to them. Now, if they forgive you your debt, make sure you hear them say, I forgive you your debt. Don't just assume on people's goodness. Well, they're a Christian, they'll let me go. No, go to them. They may be wanting to hire you for something, but because of this unfinished business, they're concerned about your conscience. How to have a clear conscience. Reduce every single list of grievances. Who owes you a favor or money or an apology? Who owes you stuff? Don't just reduce it. Remove it. Get rid of it. Forgive. Don't wait on people to come to you to apologize. Go to them and confront them. You know you owe me. Let's talk about this. Clear your conscience of all grievances because unforgiveness will eat you alive. These are things that are voices in your head that will compete with the voice of your conscience. Clear it up. You don't have to go to a burning of the dolls in Latin America to reduce or remove your list of grievances. Stuff them in some rag doll and set fire to them. December 28th, every year since 2007, Times Square hosts a thing called Good Riddance Day. Shred it and forget it. They set up these giant shredders. They have a sledgehammer, and they have sheets of paper available to write down things you want to get rid of in your life and put it in this shredder. The news there, the media is there with their cameras. They're interviewing people. People are taking their laptops and busting them or busting their cell phones. They're people with weak consciences. They're feeling guilty for doubting global warming or they're confessing the sins of other people and throwing them in the shredder. This isn't really repentance. Good riddance day. Shred it and forget it. Jesus was shredded for us. He became our sin. He nailed the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and became our sacrifice. So you don't have to go to Times Square every December 28th to get rid of your grievances. Run to Jesus and say, Lord, help me to forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Remove every single list of grievances. To have a clear conscience, we need to reconcile with foes whenever possible. This is kind of the same thing. Reconcile as much as you can when possible. As much as it depends on you, walk in peace with all men, the New Testament says. We're talking about having a clear conscience. To have a clear conscience, we need to reconnect with accountability. We all need people in our life who hold us accountable. People in our life who will ask us, how are you really doing? And we don't need to be threatened by that. Why? They're there to reinforce your conscience. They're there to help you. This is how people with addictions overcome strongholds, is through the help of their friends, bearing one another's burdens. How to have a clear conscience Repeat, repeat, repeat. I shared 11 things here. The 12th one is to repeat the 11 things. This isn't like, you know, the 10 steps to success. These are just 11 ways of saying, here's how to have a clear conscience. If you're serious about it, you want to do it. Why? Because it is a priority. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray right now, Lord, that if anyone needs to have their conscience cleansed, that they would come to you during this next song and that they would receive the free gift of repentance. It's a free gift of forgiveness because of your grace. Lord, may this word bear fruit in every life in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that every person under the sound of my voice during this webcast who's concerned about the hostility that's in the world. Lord, I pray that you would show them they can live life fearlessly if they have a good conscience. Lord, I pray for your blessings upon every person. In Jesus' name, amen.
for joining us for our webcast today. I want to conclude 
this service with a blessing. I pray that you have received the word and it bears fruit in your life. This is now available on demand. You can watch it 24-7. Listen to it again if you need to. Contact us. Email me, alan at generationspeople.org if you have any questions or any prayer requests. Our phone number here at the church is 817-326-5378. If you don't have a pen to write that down, well, it's easiest to remember is 817, that's our area code, FAN Jesus. If you love Jesus, if you're more than a fan, fan Jesus, praise Jesus, you've got our phone number. Jude, the brother of Jesus, ended his little letter with these words, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that comes from having a good, clear conscience. God bless you. Go get them, tigers.